chapter 21, as we almost always do, we're going to begin by reading from God's Word as we're moving our way slowly through this book, uh, Acts chapter 21, how slowly we ask. Well, um, by God's providence, we may finish this book by December of this year, so if you're wondering that, uh, by December we'll finish it, but um, we'll have, we actually have several missionary guests coming to visit us in the next uh, few weeks, so, um, but by December, and then I believe sometime in February 2016, we're going to begin uh, study the Old Testament book of Hosea, so that's our next place, Lord willing. Uh, this week, before I read it, I just want to mention uh, one thing. This week, um, Scott and I on Tuesday had a phone call with a man who's a pastor in Florida, and one of the things he does in addition to his pastoral ministries, he travels around uh, the country uh, visiting churches and offering them uh, help and, and consultation on how they might do things a little bit better in their church. And we were talking to him about our congregation, and I mentioned our video service downstairs and how this is the way we have sought to deal with the fact that our auditorium seats less people than come on Sunday morning. And I was describing to him the system and the process, and he said, oh. <laughs> he said, really? I said, yes. He said, you have some very kind people at your church to do that, to, to uh, participate in that. That is amazing. So there's a pastor in Florida who I can tell you is very impressed with our congregation. He's not so impressed with my wisdom in asking you to go downstairs, but he's very impressed at your kindness and willing to do that. Well, uh, we're going to read God's word. Let's pray before we do, though, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning, and we thank you that as, as we begin this season uh, again where we have uh, worship downstairs in the fellowship hall, Lord, we thank you for the empty seats that it will create in this room, and we ask you that according to your kindness you would fill them, fill them with men and women that we uh, know and don't know, that we love and don't yet love, uh, that are familiar to us and not yet familiar Fill them with men and women and children and teenagers who need to hear the old, old story of Jesus and his love. I thank you for this kind congregation who uh, sees this need and participates um, in their turn downstairs. You are uh, kind to us. Here's evidence of your grace. Fill these pews, uh, Lord, we pray. Father, we have many, many things, many names that we could mention to you this morning as we come. Father, we are grieved by what's happening in the world as these migrants are moving, the greatest movement of people in 70 years. And uh, we see tragedy and conflict and violence and enmity. And Lord, we, we do pray that you would uh, you are the Lord of all human beings. You're the sovereign over creation. And we ask that you would, in your mercy, provide relief to those who are moving, searching for freedom or safety or work. Um, Lord, we are thankful to you for the reports that we have heard, a few of them, of many migrants who are moving into Germany and are hearing the gospel and turning to Jesus Christ. That is good, good news. But Lord... Um, Equally so, we hear reports of death and disease and loss and grief, and we pray for your mercy. Uh, Lord, we pray for our president and uh, his advisors 
that they would be active in this situation wisely to bring about relief for those who are suffering. Father, you send rain on the just and on the unjust, and we pray that you would show kindness to these uh, men and women and children. Father, we think of our friend Dan Kamenstein, who this morning is in Tanzania. Thank you, Father, for the skills that you've given him in um, in portable ultrasound technology. Thank you for the vision that he has for seeing this technology used well in Africa for medical care there. Lord, I pray for him as he has opportunities when they come to meet with uh, fellow brothers and sisters in Christ there. We pray that they would be encouraging. Uh, We pray for Jenny and the boys as their home that uh, you would sustain them while Dan is gone. Thank you for this our our brother, and the work that he does. Father, for those who are not with us because they are ailing, um, Don Master and Lonnie Smith, uh, we think this morning of Craig Hall, all three of these men um, uh, facing various physical challenges. We pray for those who are caring for them and seeking to show love to them. We pray, Father, that you would exalt your son in their lives, that they would recognize that Jesus Christ is their source of hope and uh, comfort and peace in the midst of their afflictions. Um, Lord, doubtless there are more who are suffering that we know that should come to my mind right now. Show them mercy. Lord, thank you for Awana that's going to start this week, and I'm grateful to you for the 50 kids who will be here on Wednesday night. We hope it's more who will be um, here exposed to our congregation and our leaders, and I pray as, as here we go again, some of these leaders, this is their ninth, tenth year serving, and, and I pray that you would uh, fill them with joy at the prospect of speaking and representing Christ well to these kids who come. Lord, we pray for gospel fruit in these children and in these uh, families who we have contact with this year. Glorify your name in our building on Wednesday night as, as these children come. You are good to us. Now we ask that you would extend your goodness to us as we have your word open before us. You're our shepherd. Feed us your sheep, we pray. Um, teach us what we do not know. Uh, help us to treasure what we do not value. Fill us with joy for the sake of your son because this is his good word and uh, uh, we love it. So help us today, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, Acts 21, verses 1 through 16. Follow along as I read from my copy of the New Testament here. After we had torn ourselves away from them, we put out to sea and sailed straight to Kos. The next day we went to Rhodes and from there to Patara. We found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, those three places that he's mentioned so far in the southeast of contemporary uh, Turkey. Phoenicia is where modern-day Israel is, just north of it, probably actually where Lebanon is, not Lebanon, Lebanon, that Lebanon, not Lebanon, where you get good bologna. Anyway, let's move on. Here we go. We went, verse 2, we found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, went on board and set sail. After sighting Cyprus, the island, and passing to the south of it, we sailed on to Syria. We landed at Tyre, where our ship was to unload its cargo. We sought out the disciples there and stayed with them seven days. Through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When it was time to leave, we left and continued on our way, 
all of them, including wives and children, accompanied us out of the city, and there on the beach we knelt to pray. After saying goodbye to each other, we went aboard the ship, and they returned home. We continued our voyage from Tyre and landed at Ptolemais, where we greeted the brothers and sisters and stayed with them for a day. Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip, the evangelist, one of the seven. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. After we had been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it, and said, The Holy Spirit says this, In this way, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. When he would would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, The Lord's will be done. After this, we started on our way up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples came from Caesarea accompanied us and brought us to the home of Manasseh, where we were to stay. He was a man from Cyprus and one of the early disciples. Uh, when they were 18 years old, uh, twin brothers, Alex and Brett Harris, wrote a book called Do Hard Things. Now, if you have been a teenager and in a church any time between the year 2008 and today, you have heard of this book. This is the go-to graduation present for anybody graduating from high school between 2008 and now. When I graduated from high school all the way back in the last century, I got four copies of my utmost for his highest. But now... The book is Do Hard Things. Um, It's a simple book. It's a very simple book. Uh, It's a call for teenagers in particular to push against the low expectations of our society. Adolescence is growing in length. There is in our culture an ever longer period of time where you are not expected to accomplish anything of great significance. So uh, this is a call against that. 1 Timothy 4.12 is the rallying cry. Don't not let anyone look down on you because you're young. Now the Harrises, uh, our twins, are not uh, teenagers anymore. In fact, they're 27 years old. Alex uh, is married. He went to Harvard Law School. (laughs) Hard things. And now he is a, a clerk at the 10th Court of Appeals in Colorado. Brett, on the other hand, took a different path. Brett got married as well, and a few weeks, though, after he married his wife, Anna, some of the minor symptoms that she had been having exploded into major and debilitating symptoms, and she went to the doctor, and they finally figured out what was wrong with her. She had a case of undiagnosed Lyme disease, and they think she had had it since she was about 10 years old. Uh, And since that diagnosis, Brett has been caring for her full time. He manages all of her medical appointments and, and researches her options. He cooks, he cleans, he bathes her, he carries her upstairs. He does everything with her. For a number of months, when she was having some bacterial induced panic attacks, he sat with her and walked through all of those things. This is not, I don't imagine, what he was thinking when he exchanged vows with his bride. No husband or groom goes to the altar thinking that this is going to be their life. But he, he promised, you know, he promised in sickness and in health. 
The question that we should ask is, what keeps him going? Why does he keep doing this? All of the hopes that he had, perhaps, for their marriage, completely turned upside down. Why why does he keep doing this? I I suppose, on the one hand, if you publish a book called Do Hard Things, it's kind of hard to walk away under those circumstances. Yet, what's, what's going on? Well... It's a question that I hope to answer by reading or by thinking about this passage that's sitting before us open in Acts 21. This is the final leg of Paul's journey to Jerusalem. We have been traveling with him to Jerusalem. It's a major plot point in the book of Acts. Just like Jesus set his mind resolutely, Luke 9, to go to Jerusalem, Paul is very resolutely headed to Jerusalem. He doesn't know everything that's going to happen to him there, but he knows it's going to involve suffering. And this passage is about how Paul's friends, the people he had known for a long time and some people he met new, um, worked through the implications of what they knew was going to happen to Paul uh, in, in the future. Knowing what is ahead, what awaits him in the future, what should Paul do? Jerusalem is the point. That's going to be suffering there. What should Paul do in light of that? Um, you know, we've talked about this a lot of times, haven't we? It's a theme of the Bible. It's especially a theme of the book of Acts. God calls us to do hard things. Jesus commanded us to love our enemies. Oh, that's a hard thing. He told us to love our enemies and to persevere in the face of mockery or abuse for his sake. Do it without becoming shrill or becoming vicious in return. Don't be silent, though, either. Love your enemies and speak. God calls us to do hard things. He calls us to avoid temptation, resist temptation, to not do things that we desperately want to do. God calls us to do hard things. We're following Paul along this path of this hard thing. Um, and, and here are three truths that I want to give you from this passage about doing hard things. With apologies to the Harris twins and anybody who's been a teenager since 2008, that's what I'm going to talk about, hard things. And I want to talk about three things that keep us moving on this same path with Paul towards something very hard. Three things. One's a what, what do we do? One's a how, how do we do it? And the third is a why, why would we embrace this? We're going to spend most of our time on uh, the first one, I, I think. Um, what? Number one, what do we do? We do not shy away from the call to hard things. We don't shy away from the call to hard, the call to hard things. So Paul's on his way to Jerusalem, and three times while he's on his way to Jerusalem, he gets these warnings from the Holy Spirit about what is going to happen. The first one was back in chapter 20. We read it last week. Actually, look over at 20, verse 22. Chapter 20, verse 22. It says, And now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. Every city he's going, this warning comes. Whew. Now look over at chapter 21, verse 4. Look what it says here. We sought out the disciples there and stayed with them seven days. Through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. Now, here we have a question. It's odd, isn't it? Is the Spirit giving contradictory advice? How could, in verse 20, uh, chapter 20, 
Paul is compelled by the Spirit to go. And then in verse 4, they, these people, through the Spirit, tell him not to go. What's going on? How is this? What's working? What, what, what's happening here? I don't think that this is contradictory. Um, I think what's happening is that the Spirit is revealing to them what's going to happen to Paul, and they, on the basis of that prophetic revelation of what awaits him, are warning him not to go. So the revelation of what's going to happen comes from the Spirit, and the, the call not to go comes from the people. Something similar happens here right in chapter 21, verse 10, with Agabus. I love Agabus. That's a great name. If you're going to have a baby, Agabus would be an awesome name for your child. Now, we've met Agabus before. Um, Agabus um, uh, in Jeremiah, excuse me, in Acts 11 had already prophesied a famine that was going to come to Judea. And now he comes and prophesies again. And he goes over and he takes Paul's belt off. It must have been a very long belt. It would have been. It what's keeps, it's what keeps your clothing together. And also there would be some money, uh, room in there for money. So he takes his belt and he ties himself up, his hands and his feet. And he prophesies, this is what's going to happen to you, Paul. You're going to be tied up like this. You're going to be handed over to the Gentiles. So the prophecy comes from Agabus. And then on the basis of this, verse 12 we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. Even, even Luke is pleading with him. Don't go. We, says. Three warnings. Jesus on the way to Jerusalem prophesies three times what's going to happen to him. The Son of Man's going to be handed over to uh, the Gentiles. He's going to be crucified. Three times Paul receives these prophecies, messages from the Holy Spirit about what's going to happen to him, the hard things that he's going to encounter in Jerusalem. And it does not stop Paul. He keeps going. He goes. He goes. There's a scene in the, in the Disney cartoon called The Emperor's New Groove. This is the level of what we watch at our house these days. Um, it came to mind when I was studying this passage in this scene, uh, two of the main characters, one a talking llama, <laughs> it is Disney. And a Peruvian farmer are tied to a log and they're floating down the river. I'm not sure. They're floating upright like this, which I don't think is physically possible. Anyway, they're floating down the river and the llama's looking uh, uh, upstream and the, the, uh, the farmer's looking downstream. They're opposite and, and the farmer says, uh-oh. And the llama says, don't tell me. We're about to go over a huge waterfall. Uh-huh. Sharp rocks at the bottom, most likely, bring it on. Very deadpan, the llama says, we're going. This is going to happen to us. I know what's ahead. We're moving. Paul's not as flat as they are in that, in that scene. Actually, this is, this is one of the weepiest passages in the whole book of Acts, isn't it? Um, look at, at verse uh, 13. Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? You're almost convincing me not to go. You can't really blame the people here. It's either, these are well-meaning, sincere followers of Christ, and they don't want Paul to suffer. They love him. They don't want him. They don't want to lose him. Um, re- remember what Peter said to Jesus when Jesus first talked about his crucifixion? No, not you, Lord. Never. That can't happen. No. Why endure suffering if you don't absolutely have to? I had a conversation a while ago with a woman. She's not part of our congregation, but uh, I was talking to her, and, and her marriage was in trouble. And um, 
chiefly because of decisions that her husband had made. And she got a lot of advice, some of it from her fellow believers, just give up. Just walk away. Don't Rebuilding this relationship is going to be too hard. It's going to cost you too much. He doesn't deserve it. Why are you going to endure that suffering if you don't absolutely have to? Or what about the bus ride? The bus ride that you send your son on every day. He gets on the bus and there's this kid on this bus who makes fun of him and uh, makes fun of him for being a Bible club kid. And everybody laughs at him. How many times are you going to say to your son when he gets on the bus, you remind him to love his enemies and pray for the people who persecute him before it sounds hollow to you? How many times are you going to say those words? If you're a follower of Christ, I want you to ask yourself this question. What hard thing is, does God want me to do right now? What hard thing is God calling me to do right now? Maybe it's a financial situation. Maybe, maybe the hard thing God wants you to do is start the conversation that you need to start with someone to repair the relationship that's been broken. And you really don't want to because it's going to be hard. Or maybe you need to establish some sort of new patterns of discipline in your life or in your home. Hard things. God calls you to do hard things. We don't shy away from hard things. Now the reason, uh, well, it's just an aside actually. It shouldn't surprise us that God calls us to do hard things, does it? Every person that Jesus met, he called to do hard things. He, he met once this woman um, at a well, and uh, she had been married five times, and she was living with a guy, and Jesus brought it up. We should talk about this, and she changed the subject. I don't want to talk about that. Or one time Jesus met a guy. He was young, he was powerful, and he was rich. Quite the catch. His problem was that his life was wrapped up in his wealth, and Jesus told him that he needed to break the chain connecting him and his bank account. Hard things. Every time Jesus met a religious person, his concern for them, he talked to them about how their religious achievements had made them arrogant and proud. Jesus, he, hard things. He calls people to hard things in part because in contrast to his own life, Every other life in this world is bent or broken in some way. The Bible uses images. We're like nets, fishing nets that are torn. We're like bones that are broken. We're, we have bodies that are diseased. This is our natural condition. We are this way because we're living as enemies of God in the world he made. We are cesspools of disorder. One of the words that the Bible uses to describe us is transgressors. We're lawbreakers. And the definitive work that Christ did on the cross takes care of that. It, 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 it addresses our legal condition before God, our guilt before God. We turn to Him in faith and find forgiveness and life based on Christ's substitution for us. He paid the penalty we owed. But Jesus called us to do hard things still because he is working out in us, in our daily lives, what he accomplished on the cross. It doesn't surprise us that God calls us to do hard things. We don't shy away from them. He's working these out in our lives. Now, I've been talking about us being bent and broken. I want to change that image a little bit in your mind. This may not be help, uh, a great communication technique, but 
follow me here, this image. My children, when we used to go to the grocery store, inevitably we'd walk through the produce section, and their favorite thing in the produce section of all the things in the produce section were twist ties. They love twist ties. We'd, we'd walk through the produce section many years ago, and they would always want to get some twist ties to take home. All right, if you want a twist tie, you can go get a twist tie. Just don't ask me for Cocoa Puffs and we'll be fine. So we, uh, we walked over. And, yeah, I don't know if you've been to a grocery store recently, but Twist Ties, they, they're, they're in a stand and, and they're all, they're packaged very flat and nice, beautiful little Twist Ties. And my children rip off a couple and carry them with them. The interesting things about Twist Ties is they come straight, come straight as an arrow, with fine green paper on them. Straight as an arrow, Twist Ties are absolutely worthless. They're useless can't do anything with a twist tie unless you bend it, right? You've got to bend it, twist it around. That's how you keep your tomatoes in the bag or your plums in the bag. You've got to bend and twist the twist tie in order to make it useful. God calls you to do hard things because your life needs to be bent to his will so that he can make you useful for him, so that you can be usable in the work that he wants you to to do. He calls you away from what is easy and what is natural. We're sinners. And he calls you to a little bit of twist, a little bit of bend, so that we might be useful for his purposes. An unused twist tie is a beautiful thing. It's straight, it's green, the paper isn't torn at all or ripped. It's a beautiful thing. It's absolutely useless. You look around at people and you see how God has called them to hard things and their lives are a little bit ripped and a little bit twisted. Those are the people that God is using to accomplish his good purposes. We don't shy away from hard things. That's what we do. Now, how do we do it? How? Number two, we do hard things with the encouragement of our fellow believers. We do hard things with the encouragement of our fellow believers. This chapter, this amazing chapter to me, it's a travel log, isn't it? He goes from place to place to place. We see cities, sailing, and people. Those are the ingredients in this passage. Paul, eventually here he goes to Tyre, and he finds a church. And by the end of his stay in Tyre, verse 5, he's come so close to them in a week that the whole families are coming to the beach to pray for him and to say goodbye. Verse 7, they greet the brothers at Ptolemais. There's people involved. Verse 8, we, we meet Philip again, the uh, evangelist. Do you remember Philip, the man from chapter 8 who shared the good news about Jesus with the Ethiopian eunuch? Now, just for a minute here, I want to think about Philip before we talk about Paul and the people in this passage. Uh, Philip was one of the original men appointed in Acts chapter 6 to make sure that the widows were being cared for uh, equally. Um, I wonder, this meeting here in this passage, as best I can tell, this is the first time that Luke is meeting Philip. And Philip was an eyewitness to so many of those events in the early chapters of the book of Acts. I wonder if this is where Luke is starting to learn some of his information that he later wrote about in Acts 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, possibly. And actually... Later, Paul's going to be imprisoned in Caesarea. Luke's going to be with him a little bit. I wonder if that's the time that Luke does all of his research to write his gospel in the book of Acts, possibly. The text here says that Luke, um, or that Philip had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Now, 
Uh, in 1 Corinthians, Paul gives instructions on prophecy and uh, women prophesying in the congregation. Next week, Lord willing, because of the emphasis on prophecy in this chapter, we're going to take a whole week out and we're going to talk about the role that prophecy played in the early New Testament and we're going to think about the role that prophecy may or may not play in uh, the congregation today. So that's what we're going to do next week in part based on this chapter. His friendships, Paul's friendships continue in this passage. He's with people. In verse 16, friends from Caesarea go with him to Jerusalem. Make sure he has a place to stay there. Did you notice the change that takes place in this text here? The friends... Everyone, almost everyone start out, starts out by trying to talk Paul out of going to Jerusalem. Even Luke, we, we talked about that in verse 12. And then they change their mind. Daryl Box says that this chapter is a good example of how a congregation uh, decides together to follow the will of God. How do people as a group follow God? And he says... We should notice the flexibility in the people in this passage as they're trying to come to agreement about God's will. They think first, going to Jerusalem is bad, don't do it, Paul. But that's not how Paul sees it. He's firmly convinced that this is what he should do. And there is flexibility here. Later in the chapter, actually in a few weeks when we get back to this, Paul is going to be the flexible one. Here the church flexes to Paul. Later Paul is going to flex with the church. And here's the challenge about that. There are things in the Bible that we can't flex on, that we must not flex on, that if we do, we give away our soul, right? The deity of Jesus, the atonement, the trustworthiness of the Bible. We hold these things. We don't flex on those things. But then there are things that we hold loosely. You are a mature person if you can tell the difference between what you hold loosely, tightly to and what you flex on. You know what happens sometimes, too, when you're thinking about a decision, we've got to make a decision, what are we going to do? And you begin to pray about it, and you think about it. And you know, as you, as you give your mind and you, your prayer life to it, you can start to hold it tighter and tighter and tighter, and then you're arguing about really silly things, like the wattage of the light bulbs or something like that, right? Uh, but when flexibility comes about the right things, there's, there's unity. These folks changed their mind and they became Paul's faithful encouragers. They weren't begrudging. They cared for him. They loved him. They went with him. They prayed with him. They accompanied him. They made sure everything he had, he, everything he needed, he had. God calls us to do hard things. And brothers and sisters, there are people around you in the church this morning who are doing hard things and they need your help. They need your encouragement. They need your support. We've promised to one another in our covenant, haven't we, that we will, we will care for one another, we'll, we'll do this work. Someone here this morning is woefully discouraged about their job or something's going at home that they're, that they're really discouraged about and they're very slow to talk to anybody about it. I wonder if you have the time and enough interest to pursue how you might encourage them to do hard things. You are the means by which God encourages and pushes one another on to do hard things. Next month, our growth groups are going to start. I'm very excited about what's going to happen this year. We're going to use a new study. It's called Side by Side. It's a great book and resource about helping one another, encouraging one another. You can do this. You're God's means to help someone in this room with the hard things that God has called them to do. 
Now, that's the how. Now we're going to talk about the why. Why do we do hard things? Why do we do hard things? We do hard things for the sake of Jesus. <laughs> look, look at, uh, here, here, here is how he is at the center of this story. Verse 13. Paul answered, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I'm so, I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Jesus is at the center of this story because Jesus is the reason that Paul is going to Jerusalem. It's striking here. Interesting. The language that Paul uses is very similar to the language that Peter used before the crucifixion. I'm ready to die with you, Lord. Oh, Peter failed, didn't he? Paul didn't, though. Um, one is before the crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension, and the other is after the crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. Paul has seen Jesus. He is willing to go to Jerusalem for his sake. Paul has seen him on the road to Damascus in all of his glory. Jesus has met with Paul to teach him. Remember 1 Corinthians 11, I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. Paul has seen the Lord Jesus and he knows, having seen him, that this Christ is worthy of suffering for, doing hard things for. During one of the weeks this year that it was hot, hot like this week, um, one evening uh, I took my kids to go to the Conestoga pool and swim. Admission after 5 o'clock is 50% off, so we show up at 5.02. And... um, uh, they, when we go, they want to swim for a long time. I don't want to swim for that long, so I take a book and a chair. It was hot. And we walked into the grounds where the Conestoga pool was, and there was shade. It was in short supply. There were a lot of people there trying to find shade. So, but I found a bit of shade, and I sat down on my chair, and I opened my book, and I started reading. The problem was it was 5 o'clock, and the sun was beginning to move down in uh, the sky. So about every 20 minutes, I had to get up and move again to get to the shade. Every 20 minutes, I'd pick up a little bit and move. And then 20 minutes later, pick up and move again. It was a very small amount of work moving my chair for a very pleasant reward, shade. Now, what's happening here in this book is that Paul has massively reoriented his life. This is not like moving a chair. He has massively reoriented his life. And the reason he has done it is equally massive. It's for the Lord Jesus. He is... The call to follow him is a call to reorient your life around him, and he is worth doing that for. Paul is going to a city where he has been powerful and influential. Paul was a very influential man in Jerusalem, and now he's going back, and he doesn't know what's going to happen to him, but it's going to be painful. And why would he do that? He does it for the sake of the Lord Jesus. He's worth doing hard things for for the reward involved. It reminds me of what Hebrews says about Jesus. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. The book of Acts makes me ask this question, and I ask it of you this morning. Do you see the Lord Jesus accurately enough to do hard things? Just like Paul. Do you know Jesus like Paul knew Jesus? The conclusion of how these people, uh, they they begin to think of... of, um, Paul's, uh, the Spirit's revelations and Paul's going to Jerusalem, after they decide together, okay, this is clearly God's will, Paul's going to go, okay, they say, the Lord's will be done. Isn't that what they say? They're speaking about the Lord Jesus too. 
for the Lord's will be done, even if it takes Paul out of the picture. And actually it does, doesn't it? You know, in the book of Acts, Paul's never out of prison for the rest of the book of Acts. Even if this takes Paul out of the picture, we say the Lord's will be done. That's a sufficient why for us. Many times when you do hard things, well, whenever you do hard things, you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know. Many times when you do hard things, God's kind and you'll see the benefits. You'll, you'll, you'll rebuild a relationship. You'll have a chance to represent Christ. You'll find freedom. Not always, though. Sometimes when you do hard things, it doesn't work out the way you had hoped. You don't know everything that will happen. You don't know the what. But the point of this passage is that you do know the who that is involved. You know who you are acting for. You are acting for the risen and ascended Christ, the one who sent his spirit. And it is for him that we do hard things. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning And as we read this book, we are reminded of the supremacy and the greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who has come out of the grave on our behalf and has ascended into heaven and is seated at your right hand. He's the one for whom Paul rightly said, I will go and do anything for the sake of the Lord Jesus. Father, would you show mercy to us as a congregation that we might value the Lord Jesus like Paul does. Father, I think of the men and women in our church who this morning, when we talk about hard things, they know exactly what you're calling them to do. Some are are called to walk through a path with someone they love of of great illness. Some of them think about a phone conversation they need to have with their brother or their sister about the choices they're making in life. Some of them are are struggling the relationship that they need to end for the sake of the name of the Lord Jesus. You call us to do hard things. Help us to see the Lord Jesus that we might move forward joyfully and help us to encourage one another being faithful to that call that you have given us to follow Christ together. Help us, help us, Lord Jesus. You are worthy of every thought and breath and life that we have, and we would honor you with them all. We pray these things in Christ's name together, saying, Amen.